1: This is the Area 941 Radio Wolinsky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Isaac Asimov, who died at the age of 72 in 1992, was considered, along with Ray Bradbury and Robert A. Heinlein, one of the three great masters of American science fiction of the 20th century. He began sending in stories and getting published in science fiction magazines at the age of 19, and at the age of 21, with the publication of the short story Nightfall, in John W. Campbell's Astounding Stories, moved into the first ranks of science fiction writers. That status was confirmed a year later, with publication of the short story Foundation, later renamed The Encyclopedists, which would be the first of several short stories and novellas republished as the three volumes of the Foundation trilogy. In the 1940s, Asimov turned to a series of stories focused on robots, which became the collection I, Robot, and then in the 50s turned to novels, including Pebble in the Sky, The Caves of Steel, and The End of Eternity. Along the way through his entire career, Asimov wrote dozens of nonfiction books on a wide variety of topics, along with young adult novels, mystery novels, and short stories in various genres. In the end, the number of books he wrote or edited exceeded 500, not counting separate stories and articles. I interviewed Isaac Asimov on August 10th, 1983 in a New York City bookstore he was visiting to sign copies of a new collection, The Union Club Mysteries, a year after his return to the world of the Foundation Trilogy with the novel Foundation's Edge. Because his two-volume autobiography had come out a couple of years earlier and dealt with the plots and themes of his fiction, my interview focused instead on his life as a writer and his work with editors and publishers.
2: You, for a while, had moved away from science fiction, and in fact, away from writing novels, except, I believe, for Murder at the ABA.
0: The Gods Themselves. The Gods
2: Themselves. You had not written any novels for quite a number of years. What prompted you to get back into writing novels?
0: Doubleday. They insisted.
2: What was your feeling about writing uh, Foundation's
0: Edge? Well, I didn't want to, because they'd been after me for... Well, at least 20 years to do it, and I always suggested something else instead. I mean, I wrote The Gods themselves largely to give them a novel, and but they got more and more intent on having me do a fourth foundation novel, and finally I felt, well, I guess I would better. So I did, and uh, it was not a good idea because. It made the bestseller list for 25 weeks, and that gave Doubleday the idea that I ought to write novels continuously, one after the other, for the rest of my life. I have written another one, which will be out two months from the time we are talking now. It's called The Robots of Dawn, and it's a sequel to The Caves of Steel and the Naked Sun. And I have a contract. In fact, they gave me the contract in the advance before I had finished The Robots of Dawn uh, for another novel. I said I would like to have a few months off. And they said, sure, but every time I see them, they ask me casually, have you begun the novel yet? So I guess I uh, <laughs> we will see what happens. And is that one going to be another sequel to that? Well, The Robots of Dawn, points, my robot novels, in the direction of the Foundation, and then I want to write my next novel uh, sometime afterwards, which will clearly show the conversion of one universe into the other from the human standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then I will know enough to be able to write the sequel to Foundation's Edge, although there is a possibility I will need one more just before the three foundation novels of the trilogy. Uh You know, one in which perhaps Harry Seldon will be the hero. But uh, assuming I live out another decade, uh, I'll get a lot of novels done. Unless, you know, they flop completely and Doubleday says, stop, stop, go back to the candy store.
2: Are you beginning to build up an interest again in science fiction, or is it just...
0: Oh, you must understand that I never lost the interest. People think that I, I left science fiction, but that's not so. If I hadn't been so prolific and uh, yet had written all the science fiction stories I wrote between fifty-eight, when my last science fiction novel in, of the 50s appeared, and Foundation's Edge, If you just counted up all the science fiction stories I'd written, yes, there'd be well over a hundred, I think. And, you know, people would say I wrote a lot of science fiction. It's just that I write so many other things besides that they tend to think I'm not writing science fiction. But, for instance, uh, just recently I put out a collection called The uh, Winds of Change and Other Stories, which contained about 20 stories, all but one of which was written after 1976. It's only that I haven't written many novels, though I've written some, and that I've refused to write foundation novels. And that's what I've returned to. I've written a foundation novel 32 years after I finished the foundation series, and then now I've written another Lige Bailey novel, uh, something like 25 years after I had finished the second novel.
2: When you were working on Foundation's Edge, did a little voice in your head, was there a little critical John Campbell saying, would this have gone in analog, or were you able to divorce yourself, or are you so far removed from that era that it was a completely different reality for you?
0: Oh, uh, I I didn't worry about John Campbell at all. I know that the ending of Foundation's Edge would not have suited John Campbell. A number of the things I did would not have. As far as robots of dawn are concerned, I'm sure much of it would not have suited him, but there was a certain feeling of freedom too, Mm. because when you wrote for John Campbell, you were really inside a rather tight straitjacket. He had his ideas, and he wouldn't let you go beyond them. It was nice knowing I'd reached a stage where not only I didn't have to worry about uh, John, but where the other editors I worked with, I knew, were not going to make serious and fundamental changes.
2: Let's get back to those early days. I know you you wrote, you've written a two-volume, very extensive autobiography, and in it you go into some detail about your early days with the Futurians and with John Campbell. Do you have any recollections of that, I believe it was the 1939 science fiction convention where Sam Moskowitz barred the doors and didn't let in the Futurians in Walheim?
0: No, sure. I remember that very well, because uh, several of them were going to just walk in, and I was one of them, Mm -hmm. and there were Sam Moskowitz and James Torezi and Will Sikora barring the way And the others stopped since they didn't feel they would win a fight. And I kept on walking because it was clear that they didn't know me and were paying no attention to me. So I just walked in. Uh, I felt pretty guilty about it because I felt that solidarity required that I stay with the rest of the Futurians. On the other hand, I was dying to attend the convention. And so I suppose selfishness won out over my sense of loyalty.
2: What was the attitude of the people in the convention toward what had happened?
0: None of them knew about it. As a matter of fact, uh, Leslie Perry, whose name was real name was Dowie, and who was going with Fred Pole. I don't know if she, she may have already been married to him. If not, she was married to him afterwards. She was there, and she motioned to me in some kind of improvised, improvised sign language that I should get up when I went up to say a few words and give an impassioned address on the injustice of keeping them out. But I had the faintest idea what her signs meant, and so I didn't. And then she scolded me afterwards, and all I could do was look sort of pained and uh, helpless. I found out decades later, when Fred Pohl wrote his autobiography called the way the future was, that uh, she was very non-fond of me. In fact, when he wanted to talk to me, he couldn't have me in the apartment, he had to talk to me outside, something I was never aware of. I thought he just wanted to walk. But I suspect that perhaps one of the reasons she didn't like me, there were many reasons, I presume, but I'll never know because she died long ago. But one of the reasons that she didn't like me was because I had failed her at the convention, but that was not my deliberate doing.
2: What are your recollections of the Futurians? A few weeks ago, I talked with Damon Knight about some of them, Uh, particularly John Michel, who seemed to hold so much promise and yet didn't produce. Do you remember him particularly?
0: I remember him. Uh, He was the most political of us. I mean, one of the reasons why the Futurians split away from the Greater New York Science Fiction Society was that they were considered by the others to be left winged. This was before I joined. I joined after the split. I had been invited to attend by Fred Pohl to attend a meeting of the Greater New York Science Fiction Society, and in between the invitation and the time I got a sort of modified invitation, the split had taken place. And I attended the meeting of the Futurians under the impression that it was the Greater New York Science Fiction Society. Found out later on. It, uh, I wasn't cheated, though. Had I been there before the split, I would have gone out with the Futurians. But John michel was the most obviously political one of the group. Donald Walheim may have been next. We never discussed politics, however, except with respect to science fiction. That is, science fiction had to be anti-fascist. And uh, since I was anti-fascist, that sounded pretty good to me.
2: What happened? You know, you, you started writing for Campbell and sort of veered away from the Futurians. So was it kind of a gradual veering away? or
0: Well, there were several reasons for it. One was that I did start selling to a science fiction so that I felt ill at ease being simply a fan, especially since I was the first one to start selling. Uh, But secondly, they were a lot more mobile than I was. They lived uh, as a group together and uh, I was in my father's candy store. And I couldn't get away easily because I had to work there, and I had no way of getting to them mostly by any easy way except walking, since nickels for, for subways and buses didn't grow on trees, so that I couldn't be associated with them as much as they were associated with each other. Yeah. And uh, gradually I drifted apart, but the break didn't come until 1942 and I moved to Philadelphia because I got a job there. And uh, then the break with my New York life was for a period of time complete. For instance, until I went to Philadelphia, I'd been visiting John Campbell every every month, certainly sometimes more than once a month. After I went to Philadelphia, that came to an end. Mm -hmm. For a period of time, I stopped writing science fiction and so on. So that uh, my break with the Futurians was gradual, didn't have any one reason, and it was not exactly voluntary. It was uh, circumstantial.
2: You talk in the first volume of your autobiography about John Campbell and some of your impressions of him, and uh, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on... I know that there's A split in science fiction today uh, as to the value of Campbell. Some people still see him as kind of the the single most important figure in the field in the 20th century uh, in a positive way. And some kind of say, well, maybe he wasn't that important and his importance was more negative in that he did constrict writers and forced writers to be not to expand into, say, beyond the pulps. And it wasn't until Horace Gold and Boucher and McComas that science fiction really began to mature and it may have been partly Campbell's fault that it took so long.
0: No, no, I'm much more pro-Campbell than that. I think that Campbell elevated science fiction out of the pulps, and if it hadn't been for John Campbell, science fiction probably would have died in that form, at least with the popes. Mm. Uh, but he produced a great many writers who are still active and important today, and who perhaps wouldn't have gotten into the field without him, and who wouldn't be the kind of writers they are without him. So for that reason alone, he's important. And then he insisted on rational science fiction, on writers understanding science, and so on. And between 1938 and 1950, the history of science fiction is entirely the history of John Campbell. Now, nobody can remain innovative and at a at the edge of a field forever, and John, gradually the field went beyond John. It was sort of as in the case of Doc Smith, who in 1928 wrote Skylark of Space, which was... 10 years ahead of its time. And in 1937, he wrote Galactic Patrol, which was one year ahead of his time. And 10 years later, was writing stuff that was 10 years behind the time, you know. Mm. And the same with John Campbell. By the time 1950 came around, science fiction had to some extent outgrown him and showed this in two ways. One was, of course, that the magazine of fantasy science fiction started in 49, Galaxy started in 50, and they marked, a, they marked a new mutation, and it was time for it, it was time for it. And secondly, in 1950, John Campbell published Dianetics in the magazine, and somehow took what I consider to be a wrong turning. He became interested in mystical things, and peculiar things, and alienated some of his writers in this way, somehow turned astounding into not quite the magazine it had been. I don't fault him for that necessarily. What he had done in the, in the 12 years of the Campbell Golden Age much more than makes up for the peculiarities of his later years. And even when he was no longer the great Campbell, he was still better than any of the three, you know. Mm. He had faded only in comparison to his own greatness and not necessarily to the rest of the field. And he was still capable of doing great things too, you know. But uh, certainly after 1950, until 1950, I was a Campbell author. I did not want to be anything else. I was a Campbell author to the extent that I was honestly afraid that if anything happened to Campbell, I would no longer be a writer, because I could only write for him. Uh, but after after Dianetics, somehow things faded a little with me, and I never quite felt the same about Campbell, and astounding, although I still published with him. My novel, The Currents of Space, appeared in... Astounding in 1952, and uh, The Naked Sun appeared in uh, Astounding, I think, in 1957. So, you know, I didn't, my relationship wasn't cut off, but it wasn't the same sort of idolatry that had existed before. And then, too, uh, Galaxy asked me for stories, and I found a certain freedom in writing for gold. On the one hand, he too had his peculiarities, uh, in some respects much more serious than those of Campbell, but it enabled me to do things I couldn't do with Campbell, and I seized the opportunity.
2: Did you notice uh, any difference in his personality over the years? I mean, did that change too? Was it just his interests,
0: do you think? Just his interests. He was always, to the very end that I knew him. He was always the same John Campbell, extremely talkative, extremely, well, Harlan Ellison used to say that the epitome of John Campbell was that he would say to you, yesterday, Peg and I were dealing with a proposition that it is no use to lecture people, and if you'll listen to me, I'll tell you why. <laughs> so that is, he grabs your lapel. Right. So to the end, he tended to lecture, he tended to, and but he was always clever. You could yeah. never out-argue him or out-talk him. And to the very end, he was the kindest person you could possibly imagine. His political, economic, and social views were, from my standpoint, horrendous. Uh, who was it? I forget now who used to say that that Campbell's views were a little to the right of Genghis Khan. He was an extreme conservative. He was, I honestly, he used to, he used to support George Wallace. And I often wondered whether he was just doing that to get people to do a little thinking about it, Mm -hmm. or if he was serious. But maybe he was serious. But in any case, the views he expressed were completely different from mine and in fact would drive me to a distraction. Did you argue
2: uh, with him at all? Oh
0: kinda... yes. From the very beginning I argued with him. Even when I was a little kid that I when I was a little kid I was afraid. I'd argue, then go home and worry that perhaps he now wouldn't buy any of my stories, and so I tried to tell myself, "Don't argue with him." But then, you know, yeah. couldn't help it. And as we went on, I we argued bitterly by mail in the later years, until Peg stopped the correspondence because she felt it might ruin the friendship. Yeah. But it never did. We were always we were always friends. And I, the last time I saw him, which was at a Lunacon, in 1970, I believe, I remember sitting with, with Janet, I, I had met her by then, she hadn't married yet. I remember sitting in the hotel room with him and with a few other people and, and it was just like the old days, yeah. listening to John lecture us and occasionally saying a word. And sort of made me feel 18 again, although by that time, I was 50.
2: <laughs> you had dealings with gold, which you said were...
0: Yes, yes. He was also a nice guy, but he was, well, for one, that the time I knew him back in the 50s, he could not leave his apartment, literally. He was an agoraphobe.
2: Still is. We did make a trip to San Francisco, and I did get a chance to meet him briefly but I understand that it's difficult. He will leave, but not often. Now he lives in L.A.
0: Well, I'm not very much of a traveler myself, you know. I don't use airplanes, and I don't like to travel, but I do if I have to. I've even gone to California by train, and to Europe by ship, and so on. Also, he perhaps as a result of not being able to move about freely, he was sometimes rather testy. And it turned up, his testiness turned up in his rejections. He tended to write rejection letters that had to be seen to be believed. And a great many writers became uh, offended as a result and wouldn't write for him, including me. And uh, I'm not easy to offend. But, you know, a rejection is never pleasant under any circumstances. And once you imagine yourself to be an established writer and you're used to having editors reject very politely because they want another story out of you, to suddenly get one in which you're mercilessly berated arouses indignation, and you decide you're not gonna write for them anymore. And eventually, poor Horace was forced to write a letter to a fan magazine uh, saying that he wouldn't do it anymore. I remember there was once a issue of some fan magazine, I don't remember which one, in which a number of writers wrote horror letters about their experiences with Morrison. I felt bad and I wrote and said I too had received rotten rejections and gotten annoyed and angry, but the fact is that one of my best stories resulted from having Harvest point out obvious flaws in it. And I said, although I hate revising, and I'm always ready to insist that the way I have the story is perfect and that that any suggestion of a change is just uh, not to be endured. After he pointed out what was wrong with my story and just asked for a small change, I tore it up. wrote a completely different story from scratch. And it ended up being one of the best stories, in my opinion, and that of many others that I've ever written. It was The Ugly Little Boy. Uh, He published it under the name Last Born, but that was Horace. He and Fred Pohl had one thing in common. They invariably had no taste for titles. They would substitute a title of their own that was absolutely useless. I I could never figure out why they imagined that such a title had any value whatsoever, and I always changed it back to my own title when I collected the story. But, I mean, that's a comparatively benign flaw in these people because what the heck. But anyway, it's The Ugly Little Boy, and it appeared in 1958, I think, in Galaxy, and I've loved it ever since.
2: Did you do any work for uh, any
0: work with Seal Goldsmith, Lolly? Oh, sure. She was one of—I mean, every once in a while I'd encounter a beautiful editor. I think she was the first editor I ever worked with who was not a hypnotic male. Uh, she was a sweet, pleasant, and beautiful female, which was sufficient to hypnotize me. I remember best that she asked me to write a story in response to a satirical article that appeared in Playboy called Something Something of the Slime Gods, making fun of science fiction and using as their, whatever it was that inspired them, some stories that had appeared in Marvel Science Fiction in 1938, which at that time published what we considered very daring stories, but which were really Very mushy porn, if you know what I mean. Very far from hard. And so I wrote Playboy and the Slime God. And uh, it was, I thought, a very funny story. And it appeared in... And Seal changed the last couple paragraphs without telling me, I think. And instead of being furious with her, which I would invariably be if anyone did that, I was pleased because it was a big improvement over what I had. And uh, it's been one of my favorites since, only I call it What Is This Thing Called Love, which is a perfect title for it. And what happened was that when Groff Conklin wanted to anthologize it, he said, haven't you got a different title than Playboy and the Slime God? I said, sure, how about What Is This Thing Called Love? So that was perfect.
2: Is a story that someone had once walked up to Lee Brackett and said, You're the type of person who writes stories called things like uh, Purple Priestess of the Red Moon. And she said, I never wrote that. And then proceeded to write a story with that title. <laughs> 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 did you
0: do any stories for Howard Brown, or was that before you expanded beyond Campbell? Oh, no, no. I did stories for him, too. He was editor of Amazing. And for a few issues, he managed to persuade them to let him put out a high-class magazine which paid a nickel a word. We had never heard of that. I wrote a story I remember called What If for him, and then I wrote another story, but by the time the second story got published, uh, Amazing had gone back to its usual format. second one was called, I called it, what did I call it? Flesh and metal or mind and iron, something horrible. I don't yeah. usually say that my titles are horrible, but this one was. And he changed it to Satisfaction Guaranteed, which was a perfect title, and which I kept all the time. I don't invariably change back to my own titles. Every once in a while, an editor chooses a better title than I have, but I can't recall any cases in which Horace Gold or Frederick Folded.
2: How was Fred as an editor? Did he Fred?
0: Me? Oh, he was very good. Fred is a sort of a multi-threat person. He's an excellent science fiction writer. He was an excellent science fiction editor. He was a very good science fiction agent. I suspect that if there was anything else he wanted to try, he'd be very good at that too. I would say that of the people in science fiction that I've met, very few I would be willing to admit were more intelligent than I was. I always thought that Cyril Kornbluth was more brilliant than I was, but he was very he was very erratic. But I honestly used to worry that Fred Pohl might well be more intelligent than I was. I tried not to think about it. I remember once when we were both got out of the Army, he said to me, what was your AGCT score? And I said, 160, and he said, oh, shit, because his would have been 156. And he had hoped he had had beaten me. I didn't realize why he was asking me, and then I burst into a cold sweat because I figured he might have beaten me. (laughs) But I think one of the nicest things I can recall was that not for one instant did he doubt me. It never occurred to him that I was making up a figure just to beat him, and... I've appreciated that ever since. He probably, as I explained in my in my autobiography, he probably did more to help me than anyone but Campbell in the early days.
2: Do you miss the originality of a Campbell just throwing ideas at you, right and left? Do you miss that at all?
0: Not really, because after having that happen for let's see, I guess it was for twelve years. Yeah. I know that I was wondering if I could think up ideas for myself. In addition to that, I found that it rather a little bit spoiled the stories for me because when people talked of Nightfall as a classic, I knew darn well that he had suggested the idea, and I used to worry about whether it was really my story. Eventually, I I settled the matter to my own satisfaction. I figured he gave me the idea, but I was the guy who had to face the empty pages, you know? And as a matter of fact, he told me that on a number of occasions. In later years, when we could talk on an equal basis, when I was no longer so in awe of him Mm. that I was tongue-tied, he would say to me that, well, sure, he gave everybody ideas, but if someone wrote a story with just handed his idea back to him, he didn't give many more ideas. What he wanted was an idea that was a starting point yeah. and ended up with something more. Furthermore, when I said to him once when I was feeling a little little bit in a lacrimose mood, I said, You know, Mr. Campbell, you made me what I am today. And he said, No I didn't. No I didn't. He said, I I helped I helped fifty or a hundred authors and there's only one you. So I sort of overcame that. But still, I found that it was wonderful to make up my own d- ideas and end up with stories that people considered good, so that I didn't depend on someone else giving me an idea.
2: What are you most proud of in your entire career? what book or story? Oh,
0: well, you want me to confine myself to fiction? Well, the one I'm most proud of, I suppose, is Asimov's Biographical Encyclopedia of Science and Technology, which is a which is a large half-million-word book, which is in its third edition now, and which is, uh, which is not quite like any other book on the market, and which I honestly believe only I could have written. So one-man job, even though it's hard for people to believe that, they always think that I had a core of researchers and that there was a whole factory of people. I wrote every word, double-day off it, to pay for the research, and I refused. I wanted to do everything myself. Uh, the book I most enjoyed writing, of course, was my autobiography because uh, subject dear to my heart. And I suppose that the book that the books that sort of have me most in awe yeah. are the foundation books, not so much because I think they're the best things I've written because I don't, but because I don't know how the hell. I managed to put together something which was so enduringly, enduringly popular. Uh, I mean, if, if I had set out to write something that would be enduringly popular, that's not what I would have written, you see. Uh, of course, when I wrote Foundation's Edge, I reread the Foundation trilogy and found that I remembered only in only a very general way. The details of all the stories were new to me. Yeah. And I found I enjoyed them very much. I was horrified to discover that there was no action in them, that everything was off stage, that it was virtually only conversation. And I uh, didn't know what to do. I felt, on the one hand, this was wrong. I mean, I wrote them as individual stories for the magazine. Yeah. This was what Campbell wanted. This is what I gave him. But I, I figured now I was going to write another novel. Surely I couldn't do it that way. And yet, I couldn't break up a winning hand, and I worried about it as I read. And purely by accident, I came across a statement by James Gunn in one of his anthologies in which he talked about this and said that there is no action in the book, and no, no sex, of course. Everything takes place off stage, but somehow there's the play and interplay of ideas, yeah which, uh, on which hangs the fascination. And I figured I respect James Gunn very much as a critic, and I figured that that's what I happened to get without knowing it when I was a kid. This is what I better stick to. So as soon as I finished the Foundation trilogy, I started Foundation's Edge in the same style, and I think this is what gotten everyone made everyone so pleased with the with foundation's edge because there's no way of telling there's a 32 year gap between the first three and the fourth uh, in fact i read a review recently in a semi-pro magazine which said uh, that in foundation's edge i had managed to create a minor miracle it wasn't this it wasn't that it was the other thing but it was that i Well, here's what he said. Isaac Asimov, who's considered by many people to be style-deaf, managed to reproduce perfectly a style he had not used in over 30 years, so that within 10 pages, you're completely at home in the world of Terminus and Trantor. And uh, except that I don't really think I'm style-deaf, I will admit that I didn't do a bad job. Now, when I wrote the Oh darn it! I tell you, it's the Robots of Dawn, which yeah. will soon come out, I reread the two large Bailey story in novels first, and now the gap is only twenty-five years, not thirty-two. But still, I think I caught the style again. The style is quite different from the Foundation, yeah. but I think I caught it again. That anyone starting, uh, starting the uh, Robots of Dawn, will quickly find himself in the world of the Caves of Steel and the Naked Sun, and have no difficulty whatsoever. And there again, uh, they will be surprised that uh, I've caught it so exactly. Uh, In fact, the reviewer of Foundation's Edge, whom I was just referring to, said that, uh, in fact, if he couldn't tell from the internal evidence that the story had been written recently, he would have thought it had been written in 1955 and saved till now. And the same is true of Robots of Dawn. I just started you writing, just and I started writing and put myself back into it, and I found I could do it. I was afraid I couldn't, honest. Mm. That was one of the reasons why it took me so long to write another novel, because I started off just because I wanted to do something else. I'd spent enough years on it. Yeah. But then, once I had spent some time, I had the definite feeling that I couldn't go back. And the longer I waited, the more I felt I couldn't go back. And it was sort of a vicious cycle. And it was only, well, Doubleday just said a science fiction novel. But then Pat Labrudo, who does the science fiction books there, called me up and said, I'm glad you've signed a contract to do a science fiction novel. I just want you to understand that when we say science fiction novel, we mean a foundation novel. <laughs> and I, I, I felt terrible, but I realized that that's what they wanted, and the least I could do is try.
2: Have you uh, given any thought to now that you've done these, these novels that are, and you're eventually thinking in terms of tying it all together, have you thought of just going off and using the, the freedom that we have in the 80s, total freedom to go in any direction in the various ideas and styles that have come along, to write a completely original and new science fiction novel?
0: Well, I may eventually try that. Tried it in a way with the the gods themselves. But that certainly wasn't by any means a new wave novel. And I have difficulty in the modern ability, this combination of realism and experimental style, neither one of which pleases me. I mean, I don't like violence. I don't like unreasonable sex, uh, sex which doesn't play an integral part in the plot. Now, uh, in all the mysteries I've written, the three Lodge Baileys and a few straight mysteries, I've had exactly one murder. The murder always takes place before the story begins. In one case, it takes place after the story begins, but offstage. That's murder at the ABA, And there's... Then no further murders, and no serious violence. A little in ABA, but uh, the whole. If you put it all together, it takes up maybe five paragraphs. And again, it's intellectual interplay. And then, as far as sex is concerned, I have very little. Again, I have some in murder at the ABA, and I have some in uh, Robots of Dawn, but it's never clinically described. It's never a play-by-play. It's not necessary. People know what's happening. You know, in the Iliad, Homer describes the thrust of each spear, exactly where it enters, where it comes out, uh, how the blood gushes forth, how the uh, warrior collapses. Well, okay, Uh, Homer can do it. But that doesn't mean it's required that you do it, you know? And I don't. So that I suspect that no matter how much freedom I'm given, I will be limited by my own feelings in this respect. And my stories will always stay uh, rather rational, in which victory comes to the guy who's got better ideas. And I think, well, what the hell, so... It sort of limits my readership to some extent. Well, but I figure, what the hell? At least it makes me happy.
2: Do you do much science fiction reading on your own? Or you just listen?
0: Alas, I don't. For several reasons. First place, being a prolific writer has one fatal flaw: takes all your time. And then, the second place, the reading I do do tends to be nonfiction. And to be perfectly honest. Science fiction as, as it is written today doesn't necessarily fit my my ways of thought. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't like science. A lot lots of science fiction that I do read that I enjoy, but a lot more, which I somehow miss. It, it sort of goes past me somehow. And this, in fact, the same is true of in, in the mystery field. Yeah. Uh, for instance, I do a lot of anthologies. In the case of the anthologies, I read a great many stories but that's not really reading for fun it's already reading for work but i noticed that a great many of the older stories i still enjoy especially the series i'm doing with martin greenberg the best of 39 41 i just i just put together the best of 1950 read i think 18 stories loved every one even now, rereading them or having completely forgotten them, reading it as though my first time loved them. Uh, so it's not that I've grown disillusioned with science fiction, but somehow I feel as I go past 1960 mm-hmm. and more into modern science fiction, uh, going to have a little trouble. That is, you know, I'll know that these are the best stories of the year, but I'll be a little uneasy with them myself. Well, it's the same with mysteries. I insist on liking mostly the classic mystery story written by the British. My my preferred reading are the classic British mysteries that reached their heyday in the 1930s. I still like it. As a matter of fact, the mysteries I write, science fiction or otherwise, are those. My black widowers, murder at the AVA the one I've just published, Union Club Mysteries, all of them are essentially puzzle stories, essentially solved by armchair detectives. You don't win by violence or or by the rapid use of guns or anything of the sort. And, uh, in fact, <laughs> when ABA, when Murder at the ABA was published in the book jacket, Doubleday said, an old-fashioned mystery, I would think that that would sort of be the kiss of death, you know. Yeah. But uh, I guess Doubleday figured there'd be no use in beating around the bush. They might as well go for that audience. And it did all right.
2: It did all right. Outside of science fiction mystery, what are you working on right now?
0: Oh, I have to revise Asimov's Guide to Science. Yeah. I'm preparing a fourth edition of it, which is difficult for me to do because I don't have enough time to do it. And I'm working on a book on supernovas, but it's been half a year since I've had a chance to get to it. That's the trouble with writing a lot of fiction. It sort of cuts into my nonfiction time terrifically. Fiction can't just be dashed off. You have to spend a lot of time thinking. And let's see, what else? What else? Uh, Got a history of the world, a big book on science for Doubleday, both of which I don't know when I'll be able to get back to, even though I've done something like three or four hundred thousand words on the history of the world, and there it is just sitting there.
2: So all in all, you don't want to be remembered as the editorial rep of your generation.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's true. You know, there's a tendency to exist in in generations. In the 1930s, before Campbell, there's a whole group of authors who are highly regarded in their time, certainly by me. And after Campbell came in, they all vanished. I mean, they didn't die, they just vanished. vanished. And a whole new group came in, and uh, the same thing happened in 1960, when a whole new group came in, and a lot of the old people vanished. And then again, uh, I think that somewhere in the 70s, a whole new group came in. You expect that. There are always some people who who remain. Now, the most remarkable, in my opinion, is Jack Williamson and Clifford Simak who started in the late 20s and early 30s and who managed to stay on all through the shakeups, But since when I was a teenager, I had greatly admired these writers of the 20s and 30s, and I was aware that they had disappeared when writers like myself had come in. I feared that at the next great dying, uh, the next great changeover of eras, that I would disappear. And I used to say to myself, will I be the Ed Earl Rep of 19XX? Why Ed Earl Rep? Not that he was worse than the others or disappeared more completely, but his name was Odd, so yeah. that you remembered him more clearly. And my name is Odd. And I thought that... My name would be remembered more clearly, and people say, whatever happened to writers like Isaac Asimov, you know? But I figure by now, here it is, 1983, and I'm still around. In fact, on October 21st, I celebrate the 45th anniversary of my first sale. So I figure, with this staying power, even after I pass on to the great science fiction convention in the sky, I'll still be remembered for a while.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure, Richard.
1: The interview describes multiple books that Isaac Asimov planned or thought about writing. All of them were written and published. A miniseries adaptation of the Foundation trilogy is due to be released on the Apple Plus streaming app in September 2021. This interview was digitized, remastered, and re-edited in August 2021, and has not been heard in nearly 40 years. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.